Well, good morning. Welcome to Ugly Sweater Sunday at MRCC. If you're wearing a sweater that you don't consider ugly, but it might be, um, I have bad news for you. Um, but hey, we just want to welcome you here to MRCC. My partner in crime is coming out of the drum, bo drum booth right now, and you get to see this ugly thing. Um, that's, uh, that's something. It's great. The dragon is upset that people are missing the true meaning of Christmas, which is Jesus. So he's destroying the presence right. so that people focus on Jesus. It's pastor Brent, the dragon slayer. Yes. Uh, we, we just want to welcome you here. My name is Tyler. I'm the youth pastor here. Yes, and I am Brent. I am our group's pastor and resident dragon slayer. Yes, yes. And we do, we do have a few announcements um, to bring you this morning. Starting next Sunday, our Christmas Eve services are going to be during our normal service time. So 8, 9.30, and 11, we're going to do the candlelight service, and we're going to do communion. It's going to be a time of fellowship to celebrate uh, Jesus' birth, but it is during our normal service times. Yep, so. that's going to be a ton of fun. We'd invite you to come out next week and enjoy that. And bear in mind as well, this coming week, since it is the week before Christmas, we don't have midweek, our regular midweek events, uh, youth, kids, group meetings, stuff like that. We do have a youth movie night, there, though. There's a youth movie night, probably a Christmas movie, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Die Hard, probably. No, no, <laughs> no. The best Christmas movie. I enjoy my job too much for but that But yes, one. just keep in mind, uh, no midweek events outside of that special one this, this coming week. Also coming up in January is our youth winter camp. It is going to be January 13th to the 15th. The cost is $160. But here at MRCC, we don't believe or want money to be uh, an issue for your student not to go to camp. And so we just want to uh, invite you to get signed up at the least. Um, if you're looking for a scholarship or anything like that, please don't hesitate to reach out uh, because we have several of those. We are truly, truly blessed. Um, camp is a time um, and a very impactful time. If you've ever been to a camp, you know that there is ministry all throughout, you know, worship, uh, the message, sledding down the hill, eating gross stuff at two o'clock in the morning. I mean, there is ministry in that. And so uh, we don't want it to be a reason for your student not to go to camp. So please get them signed up. Absolutely. Some of my favorite memories were made at winter camp when I was a wee lad, uh, both times that God worked in my heart in, in amazing ways, but also I have a scar on my hand still from when I decided to impress my then girlfriend, now wife, by sledding down the hill without gloves on when you it was tried. icy. You I tried, tried yeah. and I, I still have a scar. So send your kid with gloves. Just a PSA. <laughs> um, send your kid with gloves. This morning, uh, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. <sighs> Thanks, fellas. Dumb and dumber. I'll never forget that. Dumb and dumber. That's good stuff. Hey, bless you this morning, church. It's great to be with you. Merry Christmas. Here at Second Service, everybody joining us online, we're thrilled that you're with us as well. We have something special to do in a moment, but before we do that, can I just invite us to, to remember, to let ourselves feel the fact that we worship a God who chose to become a child in our midst that we might draw near to him. That, that's his heart. That's him making himself known to us. Emmanuel, God with us, means that God became one of us. And, and even more so, a baby, a child, because he wants us to know that we're welcome to draw near. That's just an amazing thing to reflect on at Christmas. And because God reveals himself as a child, we can fee free, feel free to indulge our childlikeness. And that's what Ugly Christmas Sweater is about. So we have a judge... 
jury and executioner of one, and that's Pastor Dave, and he is going to identify our three winners in second service for Ugly Christmas Sweater Sunday. We've got a special gift for them, so Pastor Dave, take it away. So this morning we have ensembles. So first place is going to go to the Smith family. Stand up, stand and up Nolan, so we can see you. Would you do that? Nolan's going to lose his man card for wearing pajamas <laughs> in church. So here you go, Nolan. Woo. So then second service, I'm going to give second to um, Butch here and your family, but you got to put the hoods up. Yep. Hoods all the way up. There we go. All right. Stand yep. on up. Outstanding. There you go. And then third place is going to go to Jim here, who was the uh, tinsel there. Let's see what you got going here. You, you yeah, win. Very nice. Yes. And then <laughs> honorable mention is going to go to Carlton. Carlton, no, don't stand hurt up. Yourself. Honorable mention. Yeah, there we go. All right. Yeah. I'll have some for you in my office. <laughs> Right, yeah, <laughs> definitely a need for prayer there happening right there, uh, Carlton. Wow, uh, thanks to everybody who uh, enjoyed that and who participated in that. The kids are having a PJ Sunday next door. It's great stuff. Hey, before before we open God's word this morning, before we, we finish this road trip we've been on all year, uh, a couple of things on my heart I want to share with you. And, and the first one is huge thanks to everybody who has... So many people have texted me, emailed me, come up and say, Pastor Greg, you're going for surgery tomorrow. We know that. We'll be praying for you. Just pray that I'm not a big weenie for my wife, all right? Could you just pray that? And, uh, you know, a, a number of people came up and said, hey, Pastor Greg, do you want us to bring you meals? Do you want us to bring something to house? No, I live next door to 7-Eleven. I got all the food I need. It's right there. So... So don't feel that urgency. I was particularly blessed, though, by the lady who came up to me in first service. She's a nurse, and she said, Pastor Greg, I know how this surgery goes. Would you like me to bring you some stool softener? And I said, no, no, that's all right. <laughs> let's, not, let's not go there for that. But thank you for the thought, you know, very much. But seriously, appreciation for, for your kindness. You know, church, you are so good and kind to us, all of us on staff, and and Ron and I as well. So huge, huge thanks to you for that. I, I will be out next week. I'm sorry I'll miss you for Christmas, but you can rejoice in the fact that I'll be in pain. Some of you guys know how to do that. Just be able to celebrate that uh, uh, over the next week. Um, secondly, though, and on a serious note, um, I just want to thank us again as a church because we are so incredibly generous in our giving. And at this time of year, um, I see the benevolence needs that come across my desk where Pastor Dave and his team are interacting with people who are in crisis or in need, families that are hurting. And, you know, church, we're able to say yes to so many of those because of our of our giving. And, and this year, uh, we were able to do something really important and special. Uh, I want to throw a picture up here. This is the, the Mercy Reigns International Kids School in Uganda. Uh, Larry and Charlotte Travis, one of our church deacons, they lead this ministry, started it, uh, building the school there now, a whole lot going on, but this area has gone through some significant reduced crop production, drought and stuff happening, and so uh, this week, your church board voted to take care of these families, kids, and staff through this holidays. We sent a, a gift in order to feed them, to provide for every family, every staff member. We were able to send them $7,000 to get them through this season, and that is because of your faithfulness and giving, so can we celebrate that? Yeah. 
huge, huge thanks for that and, and all the other ones. Uh, you know, we are an incredibly generous fellowship, and you make that happen, so thank you for that. One last thing. A number of people have approached me over the last couple months, and they say, hey, Pastor Greg, I know that normally in October we do pastor appreciation. I mean, churches do pastor appreciation, but but at MRCC we don't do that. And, and th there's a reason for that, church. When we do pastor appreciation, what often happens is that everybody blesses me and forgets the rest of the staff. So we do a different thing here, which is that at Christmas time, your board of deacons expresses appreciation to the staff with special gifts. And they did that this week. So uh, thank you from through them. We were all blessed. And you can rest assured, so many of you that wanted to, to do that, you can rest assured that that is done behind the scenes. And by the way, um, you know, our, our church board serves relentlessly behind the scenes. And most of the time, none of us see them. And there's a couple of them here in service. So I'm going to ask them to stand up real quick. I know Larry's down here. I think Andy was playing on the keyboard. Here's George. Can we appreciate? This is just some of our board of deacons for everything that they do. Huge thanks and appreciation to all of you. So, uh, great. Uh, all right, grab your Bible if you would. Open it to Luke's Gospel, Chapter 23, Church. And, and we're going to finish this road trip. It was a year ago that we started this journey in Luke's Gospel. And if I can say this without being condescending or insulting your intelligence in any way, I'm very proud of us as a church for our attention span this year. We spent the whole year and gone all the way through Luke's Gospel. Not an easy thing to do in the TikTok generation, but we did it. So, wow, that's, that's an amazing thing. We're going to wind that up this morning in the new year. We're going to begin a new series dealing with some of the controversial issues that are in our world out there, hot potatoes that are out there. So we're going to tackle those out after the new year, but this morning, we're going to finish our road trip. So Luke's gospel, chapter 23, beginning with verse 18, and, and let me begin by saying this. Do you ever feel like you don't know what you're doing, all right? You ever have that feeling? I have that feeling a lot. In fact, I have that feeling every year when it's time to decorate the Christmas tree, because here's what happens in our house. We get it out, and Rhonda says, oh, let's do this together. It's a family thing. You can help me decorate the Christmas tree, but the whole time I'm decorating it, here's what I know. Whatever parts of the tree I decorate, she will wait till I go to bed, and then she'll fix them, all right? She'll come back out, and she'll make it look the way it's supposed to look. She has this little expression on her face sometimes when I'm hanging stuff, and I know, okay, that's going to get fixed. I don't know why, because I don't seem to know how to do this. So a couple of times when she's been real busy or something, I'll say, I'm going to bless my wife. I'm going to do it for her. She's going to come home. The tree's going to be all done. And so I get it all done, and I set it up, and... And then I noticed that it doesn't look the same the next day, uh, that, you know, she's gotten up, and I don't understand what it is I don't understand about decorating the Christmas tree. But I've learned that that feeling of not knowing what I'm doing comes with that moment. Maybe you feel that as well. Sometimes that feeling can get us in real pickles. I love the story of the CNN photographer who was assigned to take picture of the, pictures of the California wildfires a few years ago, and he was late getting to the little rural airstrip, so when he got there, he jumped into the Cessna that was warming up on the runway, slapped the pilot on the shoulder, and said, okay, let's go. When they got airborne, he pointed toward the fire in the distance and said, let's head over there. The pilot seemed troubled but didn't say anything. When they got close, the photographer pointed and said, why don't you make a few low passes over that really intense part of the fire over there? After a moment, the pilot said, um, why? And the photographer said, so, so that I can take some pictures. The pilot said, you mean you're not the flight instructor? 
And at that moment, they discovered that they didn't know what they were doing. That's a real thing. That happens to all of us. The feeling that we don't know what we're doing sometimes is something we all wrestle with. I'll bet that sometimes you have felt like that or feel like that in your marriage. I'm trying to make this work, but I don't know what he wants. I don't know what she needs. Everybody who's been a parent knows the feeling of not knowing what you're doing. You know, one of the funniest things in the world is when somebody says, yeah, I think my husband and I are ready for kids. You're like, you don't have a clue. You don't know what's ahead of you. Or when we're trying to help our kids with their math homework, we realize we don't know what we're doing. And wives, please understand that we husbands don't know when we're do what we're doing when it comes to reading your feelings. We're just guessing, okay? We're just stabbing in the dark. The feeling that we don't know what we're doing is a common one, and in fact, it's a deep one. Sociologists tell us that about three out of four Americans, deep in their hearts, live with something called imposter syndrome. Have you heard of this? Imposter syndrome is the feeling that everybody else thinks I know what I'm doing, but I know I don't, and so I'm just kind of trying to fake it till I make it. I'm just trying to learn as I go. And they tell us that about three out of four of us feel that way to one degree or another. Maybe you know what imposter syndrome is all about. You look in the mirror and you say to yourself, you don't know what you're doing. And the reason I bring that up this morning is that here's the good news as we get to the end of our road trip. God understands that you don't know what you're doing. He understands it deeply. You know, the Bible says in Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul expresses the human condition by saying, I don't know why I do what I do. What I don't want to do, I do. What I want to do, I don't do. I don't know what's going on with me. The Bible says that God understands that intimately. We're going to hear Jesus on the cross today pray a very specific prayer about that. Here's what he's going to say. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him along with two criminals. We'll talk about that. One on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus, as he was being crucified, prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. He's praying for his enemies. He's praying for those who reject him. He's praying for those who refuse to believe in him. He's praying for those who are murdering and he's saying, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. This is an amazing moment. This is a fantastic, mind-blowing revelation of the heart of God. Maybe you say to yourself, I I'm not sure about the heart of God. Well, here is God revealing his heart in our worst moment. And he's saying, Father, forgive Greg, because he doesn't know what he's doing. Father, forgive my enemies, because they don't know what they're doing. Let's explore this moment together a little bit as we turn the corner into next week's Christmas celebration. The last time we were together, we saw Jesus pray that the Father's will would be done in his life instead of what he felt. And we explored what that meant. Father, may this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus said, God, I want your will to be done in my life more than what I think I want, 
more than what I feel. And we explored what that's all about. Now that will is coming to pass. He is being crucified. He gets passed through an unjust legal system that eventually lands him in front of the Supreme Court of his time, a guy named Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. And it's worth remembering again that it was a religious crowd that kangarooed him into this moment. Don't hurry past that. It's a central theme of the Gospels. People who called themselves godly are the ones who condemned Jesus to this crucifixion. Here's what the Bible says. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. And they asked him, are you the son of God? You're calling yourself God the son. Is that real? And he replied, you are right in saying that I am. It's a little bit of passive aggressive there. And if you're not detecting it, but Jesus is saying, yeah, what I've been claiming all along is true. And as a consequence of that, they condemn him. Church, don't miss this. Sometimes God's enemies are the ones who call themselves godly. These are the chief priests and the teachers of the law. These are the publicly religious of his day. And they're the ones condemning him. How does that happen? Why does that happen? We'll talk a little bit about that going forward. But they send him to Pilate because Pilate has the real authority. Pilate's the one who has the last word. This is an occupied nation under a Roman, uh, a, a Roman government. And Pilate questions Jesus. And then he says after questioning, hey, this guy's done nothing to deserve death. And so he says to the crowd, so I'm just going to punish him and release him. And every time I read that passage, I think to myself, wait a minute, you just said he did nothing to deserve it, and now you're going to punish him. Church, the world is full of people who are just amateur politicians. They do whatever the crowd wants. They go along with whichever way the wind is blowing. Many people spend their whole lives living like that. Pilate, even with all his authority and power, found himself living like that. And the pressure to live like that is around us all the time. But as we're going to talk about a little bit in the new year, we as followers of Jesus Christ are called to swim upstream, are called to go the opposite direction, are called to, 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 to face into the wind very often. Not just to look around and say, what's everybody else doing? What does everybody else think? That's what Pilate does. Some people are just politicians doing whatever the crowd wants. Pilate falls into that category. It's a sad, empty road to nowhere. And the, the people hearing him say this, listen to how they respond. Again, this is a godly, quote-unquote, crowd. This is a religious, patriotic crowd. With one voice, they cried out, away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. Who's Barabbas? Well, the Bible tells us Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. And here's a godly crowd saying, give us him instead of Jesus. Give us him instead of the son of God. Look what a mob mentality can do to people who think of themselves as godly. They end up cheering for a criminal and rejecting Jesus and thinking they're doing God's will. Church, beware of getting involved in mobs. They carry away your reason. They carry away your devotion. They carry away our sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. These are the very people who should be embracing Jesus, but they're rejecting him for a convicted criminal. The same kind of thing happened all throughout Israel's history. 
happened in this moment. And as a consequence, the judgment that falls on Israel just a generation away is absolute. By 70 AD, Jerusalem is going to be flattened, destroyed, the temple, everything wiped out. We talked about that some time ago. Pilate, being the politician, Pilate decided to grant their demand. Even though he'd already said, there's nothing, guys, nothing worth death. Now he just goes with the flow. And he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. What a sad joke this moment is. The one they asked for and surrendered Jesus to their will to be executed. Sometimes, church, the worst thing that can happen to us is to get our way. And that's what's happening in this moment in all its awfulness. Here's the real horror of this. Jesus is innocent, but nobody cares anymore. Not Pilate, not the soldiers, not the crowd, not the chief priests and teachers of the scriptures, not the pastors of those days. Nobody really cares anymore who's innocent and who's guilty. They're so carried away that they say, give us a guilty man and away with this innocent man. We want to put him to death. The worst thing, hear me, church, because we're about to change gears here. The worst thing about sin is that it makes us unable to admit that we're wrong. The worst thing about my sinfulness is that it takes away my ability to say, you know what, I'm wrong. Yeah, I mentioned a moment ago that we live next door to 7-Eleven, and my wife is not a big fan of that fact, all right? Because I go over there and eat things I shouldn't eat sometimes. One of the things I like to do is get a big bite hot dog over next door to 7-Eleven, and I try to do that when she's not looking or not home and then say nothing about it. I've even gone so far as to make sure I throw the box away in the dumpster and not in the garbage so she won't know that I had the big bite. <laughs> One day I went over there next door and, and there weren't any big bites left. There was only a cheese-filled jalapeno giant hot dog. I, I thought to myself, well, I don't usually go there. But you know what? It can't be that bad and I'm hungry. And so, you know, i grabbed it and saddled it up with onions and relish and all that good stuff. I went back to the house and I ate it. And by the time my wife got home, my stomach was upset. And Rhonda, suspecting, she says, did you go next door and have one of those hot dogs? Now, in that moment, I should have said, yeah, and I was wrong. Where's the Pepto? But instead, I said, why do you ask? Because what sin does is makes us unable to admit when we're wrong, unwilling to admit when we're wrong. I didn't know where the Pepto was, so eventually I had to tell her. But that's not the point. The point is we can get to that awful place just like these people did. And we find ourselves crying out for a wicked leader instead of a righteous savior. That's what Israel does. And in that moment, there was more going on than, than was happening with Jesus on the cross. The scripture tells us in verse 32, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. So Jesus in this moment is not only experiencing the physical pain of the crucifixion, but the pain of being called a criminal, of being rejected by the people he loves, of being called, uh, you know, a, a bad guy. He's feeling that intensity. It's public. He's not hiding in his house and experiencing it through social media. This is right in his face. He's being rejected. He, he, in fact, he's being hated. Have you ever been hated? That's not comfortable. It feels awful. 
it really hurts deep down inside. It hurts your heart, especially, especially when it's someone you love who's hating you. But here's the thing that every good parent learns, that every good parent knows in her bones, in his soul, that when you genuinely love someone who says they hate you, you know it's because they don't understand how much you love them. You know that. I remember when I was a boy and uh, grandma gave me a spanking. Now, grandma spankings aren't real. At least they weren't in my house, right? As a boy, you just kind of pretend it hurts, you know, and all that kind of stuff because it's a fake spank is what it is, just grandma, right? So she gave me a spanking, and I was mad at her, and we had been going back and forth. And so I turned around and said, I hate you. I'll never forget what my grandma said. She said, no, you don't. You're too small and silly to hate me. <laughs> She's absolutely right. I was too small and silly to hate her. I was just reaching for something, you know. But she knew, but she knew, in fact, that I loved her. She knew, in fact, that I needed her. You see, when you love someone who hates you, that doesn't stop you from loving them. And that's why Jesus, in this moment, prays from the cross. Church, hear this, because God wants you to know this about him. Jesus says, Father... Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He says it with a much bigger version of my grandmother's spirit. He says it with a much deeper understanding about you and about me. He says, you know what, Greg? Greg doesn't know what he's doing. Greg thinks he knows what he's doing, but sometimes Greg doesn't. And I know that he doesn't. And so I want him to know that I forgive him in his error, in his failures. Let me ask us this, church. Do the leaders and influencers in your life pray like this, talk like this, or do they reach for vengeance and revenge and power and seek to destroy their enemies? The real Jesus prays like this. The real God feels like this. Remember at the beginning of this series, we said there's a lot of deep fake Jesuses in the world. And if you hear someone in the name of Christ saying something different than this, be careful, beware, watch out. Jesus said that's a dangerous thing. The real Jesus prays like this about his enemies. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And church, don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean there's no judgment. It means that the real God judges by offering grace and condemnation only comes when we reject it. Condemnation only comes when we refuse to receive it. We're going to see that in the lives of these two criminals in a moment, but God judges me when he offers me his grace and I either receive it or I don't. I either say, you know what? I don't know what I'm doing. You're right, Jesus. Uh, I need your correction or, or I don't say that in which case I have rejected his grace. I love what Jesus says over in John chapter 6, verse 37. He said, I will never turn away anyone who comes to me. Let that sink into your soul. What it means is that in your worst moment, God's at his best. In the moment when you shout at him like I did at my grandmother, I hate you. He goes, no, you don't. But are you willing to receive that you don't? 
are you willing to receive my grace? Describing Jesus, the Bible says that we have a Savior who knows how we feel, who sees through our self-delusion, who understands that we don't know what we're doing, and invites us to come to him with our brokenness and confusion. Here's how Hebrews puts it in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Scripture says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus calls us to repent. It's the only way to escape the imposter syndrome. It's when I raise my hand and say, God, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know why I do what I do. I don't know why I don't do the good that I know to do. In that moment, Jesus says, I know you don't know what you're doing. And I'm offering you my grace. Will you receive it? That's his judgment. And anyone can find this forgiveness. Remember, we learned that Jesus was crucified with two criminals. Let's watch how they react. Verse 39 tells us one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Heard him pray that prayer, saw him go to the cross, and what did he do? He hurled insults at him. And he said, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Church, understand, there are always people who hate God because he won't do what they want. Those people are always there. And the temptation to be those people is always there. But there's no need for it. He's revealed himself to us in his prayer on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. How easily it would have been for this criminal to do the same as the other one at the cross. Look at how he reacts. Verses 42 and 43, the other one said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him and said, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. You know what that is? That's God saying to that man, Hey, I know you didn't know what you were doing. All your life, you thought you had it under control. You talked big. You acted big. You lived your outside-of-the-bounds lifestyle. And the whole way, you thought you were the guy. And now, you know you aren't. And your willingness in this moment to admit you aren't, that's all I was ever looking for. So today, you'll be with me in paradise. Even though your whole life was a disaster. In church, Rome didn't execute criminals for petty stuff. This guy did, had a serious rap sheet. And yet in this moment, because he's willing to admit he doesn't know what he's doing, Jesus says, okay, today you'll be with me in paradise. That precious moment, that's the moment of judgment in your life and mine. Do we reject his grace or receive him? Do you hear him saying to you, I know you don't know what you're doing. I love you. I want to give you my forgiveness. I want to give you my grace. Will you receive it from me? That's the moment of judgment. You know, I had a powerful moment this week on Wednesday. I was invited by a family with two parents in uh, assisted living to visit their parents in assisted living. And I, I have actually for about six, seven years had a relationship periodically with their parents. See, uh, this family, the dad uh, who's in assisted living with his wife, he's quite an accomplished man, lived a, a distinguished life, a, a very advanced engineer, uh, understood uh, a lot of things, worked for a large company, made a lot of money, and had spent his whole life pronouncing himself an atheist. And as a consequence, there were several times when the family invited me to have dinner with them and their dad so we could talk. And gosh, I love those conversations because my dog tags used to be stamped atheist. That's right down my alley. 
And so we had great conversations over the years. And each of those half dozen times that we met together, by the time we were done talking, he'd say, wow, well, you're really challenging me. You're making me think, but I'm not ready to believe in God yet. I'm not ready to believe in this Jesus yet. And I say, hey, great, take your time. Everyone who seeks finds, just don't stop seeking. And anytime you have questions, ask. And so the years have gone by. Now he's in assisted living. And I went there to meet with him and his wife. And he saw me and he was, his eyes lit up. And I said, his daughter said, I asked Pastor Greg to bring you communion. Is that okay? He says, yes, yes. I said, this is Christmas communion. And I I, I got out the elements there in that little bedroom and I, I handed him the bread and I said, listen, my friend, if you receive this bread in faith, that's all Jesus is asking. The act of receiving this communion from Jesus personally, that's the act of faith. And so I gave him the bread and as we pray, just like we do on Sunday morning, I'll never forget what I heard, what we heard him say, unprompted, straight from his heart. He said, Jesus, please remember me. That's all it takes, church. That's all it takes. That moment and everything leading up to that moment was just leading up to that moment. And then he said those words of his own accord, just like this thief. And you know what? That's all God's looking for in your heart, in your spirit, in my life. Feel this moment here, friends. What's happening is that God is making his heart known to us. Greg, I know you don't know what you're doing, but I'm praying my grace over you. I'm offering you my forgiveness. Will you receive it? Now, church, let's wind this up this morning. When we believe in this way, you transition in the way that only really, the only real way that matters. Transitioning is a word that's become prominent these days. You hear it all the time. But the real changes to our heart and mind that we crave do not come from what we do to our bodies, but from what happens to our souls, to our spirits, and to our hearts. And it's when we finally realize that the people in our lives that have hurt us, they don't know what they're doing. They didn't know what they were doing all along. Nobody can see anybody else's deepest heart. Nobody can see what's going on inside of you. And sometimes family and friends, the people around us will hurt us. And we say, how could they do that? But when we are filled with God's grace, we're able to say they don't know what they're doing. And we're able to pray forgiveness over them. That's real power. The Bible says that God our Father is committed to a very specific agenda in all of our lives. Scripture puts it this way in Romans chapter 8. Those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, God's agenda in my life is to make me like Jesus. God's agenda in your life is to father you into Christ-likeness. And he uses everything in our lives to bring that to pass, our hurts, as well as our joys. And it isn't always comfortable, but that same passage tells us he's at work in everything, even a cross. That's why the Bible says we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. That verse isn't saying God is always trying to make me healthy, wealthy, and happy. It's saying God's always trying to make me like Jesus. And he'll use anything to bring that to pass. Hebrews actually tells us, imagine this, that Jesus Christ, the son of God, was made perfect through suffering. That that was the Father's agenda in the human Jesus' life, even as it is in ours. 
And this moment on the cross is the pinnacle of God's agenda in me. Even more than holiness and wisdom and knowledge and spiritual gifts and all the rest, he's seeking to make me and you people who forgive because we've been forgiven. People who pray, they don't know what they're doing over our enemies and ask for God's grace on them. That's why Ephesians chapter 4 tells us, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. I want to finish with one of the more powerful stories in Scripture that illustrate this. It's found way back in Genesis chapter 33. It's the story of Jacob and Esau. Maybe you're familiar with it. If you're not, let me give you a thumbnail. Jacob and Esau are brothers. Early in life, Jacob, the second born, actually sets out to steal his brother's inheritance. And he succeeds. <laughs> he succeeds in it. He deceives him. He tricks his brother into taking a bowl of stew. Instead of his birthright, he gets his father's blessing. And then when Esau finds out about it, you can imagine what that did to family harmony. And the result of it eventually is that Jacob flees to another land and goes through a whole series of life experiences in which he keeps cheating everybody he's around. And one thing leads to another. And finally, there's no place safe for him. And he can only go home, back to where his brother lives. And on his way back to his home, he finds out that his brother, this is decades later, his brother is coming to meet him with a great many men. <laughs> Jacob thinks, this is it. All my stuff is catching up with me. The other shoe is about to drop. My chickens are coming home to roost. I'm toast. That's kind of a 21st century translation. But the idea is, he's feeling. What would you feel? Here's this brother you haven't spoken to in decades. You ripped him off, and then you ran and fled. And now he's coming to meet you with a whole bunch of guys. What do you expect? And yet there comes this incredibly beautiful moment that we find in Genesis 33. As they saw each other, as they encountered each other, the Bible says Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. And he threw his arms around his neck, and he kissed him, and they wept. In other words, somewhere in those intervening decades, Esau, who had made his own mess, he's the one who traded away his birthright, but Esau came to realize, you know what? My brother didn't know what he was doing. He was just as foolish as I was. He was just as confused about what he was doing as I was. And he forgives him, and so he goes to meet him with forgiveness in his heart. Scripture says he threw his arms around his neck and kissed him and they wept. And then Jacob says, I love this, in verse 10, Jacob says to Esau now, for to see your face is like seeing the face of God. To experience your forgiveness is like experiencing God. Here's why I point that out. When you see Jesus on the cross say, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. What God is inviting you to do is experience him, to receive his grace, to receive his forgiveness, to understand that that's his heart and to say, yes, God, I'm willing to receive that. In the moment that we receive that, we are transformed because for the first time, we know the heart of God. That's God's heart for you. That's God's heart for me. That's what Christmas is the beginning of. That's what the cross is the pinnacle of. That's what the gospel is about. Do you believe that Jesus is looking at you and saying, I know you don't know what you're doing, but I forgive you. 
I know you're confused. I know you're running around. I know you've been led astray. I know you've been a criminal. I know you're feeling the consequences of your bad choices. I know all of that. I know why you did it. And you were wrong. But I know you were confused. And I want to give you grace. I want to give you forgiveness. Will you receive it? When we do, we are transformed. Let me finish with a story. In his book, Welcoming Justice, Charles Marsh writes about developing a friendship with a man by the name of John Perkins. They met at work. John was an older black Christian, and Charlie had never had a black friend growing up in the South. That just wasn't something that he experienced. And now, here he finds himself working with this man. They begin to make friends. They develop a relationship. And as they got to know each other, the weeks went by. One day, Charlie sheepishly confessed to John that his grandmother, his own grandma, was an ardent racist who thought that Martin Luther King Jr. was a dangerous troublemaker and that black people were actually better off under slavery. Charlie says, when I found myself confessing this to him because it had been on my heart for a while and I felt bad about it, I thought, oh no, I'm ruining our relationship. I'm damaging our friendship. They said, what was amazing was John's immediate response. Without missing a heartbeat, John said, I bet your grandmother has a garden, doesn't she? All grandmas in rural Georgia have a garden. Charlie said, well, yeah, she's got a garden. John said, what does she grow in her garden? Charlie said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, John says, does she grow cucumbers? Is she into squash, tomatoes? I bet your grandmother loves tomato sandwiches. Come on home. I'm going to make her some. I bet she grows blueberries too. And all the way back to the house, he talked about the love of gardens. When they got to his house, John took Charlie into the house, filled a huge bag of blueberries from his garden, made another sack of fresh tomato sandwiches and said, I want you to take these to your grandma and tell her they're a gift from me. And if she wants to come see my garden, she's welcome. And I'd love to go see her someday. In his book, Charlie writes, I gave my grandma that bag of blueberries and tomato sandwiches. She hasn't been the same since. She couldn't believe it. She couldn't understand why someone, especially that kind of someone, would do that for her. Charlie writes how Grandma and John have become friends. And Grandma's whole heart and mind are changing. Church, that's the power of the gospel. It's what God wants you to understand that you need. It's what Jesus offers on the cross. That's why he came. And that's what he wants us to know about his heart. Would you bow your heads? Close your eyes with me. God, we thank you for your word this morning. And Jesus, we see you on the cross crying out. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And in that moment, Lord, we see your heart towards us. We pray this morning that we would receive your heart towards us. We pray this morning that we would believe that that's who you are so that you can teach us like a father. Jesus, thank you for making the maker known to us in that moment. As we go from here today, let it be with those words, with that prayer echoing in our hearts for us, for everyone we meet. We pray for that. We ask it this morning in Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, church? Yeah, God wants you to know his heart. And I want you to know that I got plenty of stool softener. It's not an issue. All right? Now may the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit go with you throughout this week. Go with God and Merry Christmas, church. Merry Christmas.